Okay. All right. Um, it's nice we were able to start on time this morning. Um, all right. For those of you who maybe are the first time, we're talking about Old Testament narratives. Um, and today we're going to be looking at uh, Genesis 6 to 9, the flood narrative, which is a long passage. And last class, which was a long time ago, I said, hey, read ahead. Um, so, so this isn't sort of um, any way to judge people. I just want to get a, a pulse here, a sense on how many people have read Judges 6 to 9 in the last couple weeks. Genesis, Genesis, sorry, we're not in Judges. It's just a <laughs> default mode of mine. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not judging you. Um, so how about Genesis 6 to 9? Okay, all right. Um, okay, so we should probably begin with prayer then. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word together, and we ask that you would be here in our midst, that your spirit would be active, that uh, your truth from this text would come forth, and that you would help us as we look for its application to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. Um, so, first thing is, um, this class has a lot of, you know, in it. We're not going to cover why the dinosaurs got extinct. We're not going to look at how far the flood extended, or how did Noah get everybody into uh, the ark. We're not going to talk a lot of things about this text because it's a huge text. It's a beautiful text. It's very artistic. Uh, there's a lot of theology here, and we just can't touch on all of it. And for that reason, I just want us to keep focused um, on t in terms of the narrative itself. And again, we're talking about how we live as aliens in this world. And, and um, to some extent... Uh, Noah is a paradigm for that for us in some ways. So what we'll do is um, I think we'll start by reading chapter 6 together. And um, we're not going to be able to read the whole thing for the time that it would take. But um, we'll read chapter 6 and I want us to then be attentive to what are the kind of things that are being said? What are the words that stand out to us? What is the flow of the narrative? What are we being told about God, about Noah, about the context in particular? Because I want us to start by talking about that overall context together. So let's uh, open God's word then to chapter 6 of Genesis. And I'll read just chapter 6 and starting into 7. Just uh, since most of us haven't, haven't done that yet. Okay, I'm going to actually start um, at verse 5. Because the other thing we're not going to talk about is the Nephilim. Sorry for those of you who are coming just for that. <laughs> okay. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Hem, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I shall establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into it, to you to keep them alive. Also, with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, it shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send the rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. All right. So this is your time now. What is, uh, well, we won't go there just yet, sorry. So what are, what's the context that you see that we're being told about here in the beginning of this narrative? What are the things that stand out to you? Remember, try to remember some of the things that we've talked about, the characteristics of narrative. The corruption of the earth. The corruption of the earth. Okay. Violence. Violence. And it's interesting, as you point out, it's the corruption of the earth, right? It's not just man, it's the corruption of the earth. What else? Okay, so, yep, so Noah is considered to be good. He's found favor in God's eyes. So we kind of have this contrast, don't we? Okay, wickedness is increasing. So last time we talked about the garden and what's happened in the interim. It's gotten worse. Any particular stories come to mind? What's that? Cain and Abel. Step one or step two. What else? 
sorry that he made man? Okay. He was sorry he regretted that he made man? And, and just give me a... Babel took place. Remember Babel? That, you know. So, yeah, there's this progression of, of evil. And um, then he, God himself has a response to this, doesn't he? So we're told about that. Any words stand out that, you know, are interesting, look interesting, that you'd say, wow, I wish I really understood that a little better? Grieved him in his heart. Grieved him in his heart. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty amazing um, statement, isn't it? So we get this kind of almost human description of God's response, don't we? What else? Yeah, Steve. Okay, so Noah did all that God commanded him. So we see that him find him being a good guy. Um, we see that evidence further on as well. Okay, so in the context, if we look at things, remember point of view. That's one of the things we talked about before. In these first things, look at the piling up of description. Now remember, in Hebrew narrative, there's an economy of style. And what that means is it's very, very reserved in terms of the amount of description that it gives. As you can see right here. This is not an example of an economy of style. So what we're actually getting is something that the narrator is trying to draw our attention to, to emphasize, to overemphasize, in fact, and to kind of, in essence, pile these up to kind of almost illustrate and make the reader feel, feel this corruption, this wickedness. It's so wicked, this re repetitive terminology. Um, only evil continually. I mean, all of these things are just there as a sense of um, conveying the degree to which the world has now become corrupt. So what I want you to see here, first of all, the description of wickedness, but then being sensitive to, as we read this narrative, maybe for us in, in the fact that when we read books, there's a lot of description. So this kind of, you know, didn't strike us too strongly. But if you kind of become familiar with Old Testament narrative, this is a very unusual way of writing. It's very rare for this amount of detail to be stacked up that way. So as we read other narratives, be sensitive, remember, to what we're being told, the description that we're being given, um, and what it says, and how much of it we're being given, how, much, how specific were things were actually told. So first off, as we look at the context, we have this um, description, but we also have a style that is conveying to us the degree of corruption that we're we're seeing in the text. Now, the Lord's response, as Kem brought up, again, very interesting, um, says that he regretted that he had made man. These are hard things to think about uh, the Creator saying about his creation. And the fact that it grieved him to his heart. Um, so, couple comments on these two words um, as I've got written up here. Regret or sorry, because we have, it's the same word as regret in, chapter, in verse 6 and verse 7. It's translated sorry. That when God regrets or even repents of his action, it is reflective always of the change of man's heart in a situation. 
And so God then responds to that change, whether for good or for ill. Okay, so if man's heart you know, changes and he moves towards good, God repents maybe of the discipline that he's invoking, uh, that the austerity maybe that he put within Israel um, to bring them back to himself. So he repents of what he has done, which means he turns his actions away from them towards a different direction. So it, the, the language of regret and sorrow and um, repentance is something that um, we often think in terms of ourselves and our own sin and things like that. Um, but here it's, it move, it's something that moves God to action. In re, it reflects moving God to action in response to man's heart condition change. The, the idea of being grieved or pained, um, I don't know, grieved is... is Maybe a bit of a light term compared to what it's really reflecting here. So this is one of the strongest human emotions. So it's a kind of mixture between rage and bitter anguish. Um, so maybe that, that's a little bit more um, reflective maybe of what a creator would respond in terms of all this wickedness that's come about from his creation. This is the same word that's used from, uh, of Dinah's brothers when they discover that she's been raped. So that whole strong emotion and anger sort of mixed in together. And this is God's response to seeing the corruption throughout his creation, all the wickedness that is going on. Any questions on these two things? Again, here we see a number of different ways in which the narrator is describing God's attitude towards this, his response to sin. So this, again, you know, giving us insight into the heart of God, this is very unusual. So all those narrative things I told you about, all those rules are being broken right now. And so it's a way of drawing our attention to um, the severity of what's going on. Yes? So what do you say when, that, that when people would say that God changed his mind or God made a mistake? In in this particular context, um, well, one would almost have to go back to the garden to say, well, wasn't that the oops and, and everything else is kind of uh, sort of then just oops, 2.0. yeah, two point um, and I think that there's a, a sense in which God is still in control, and that it is still within his sovereign plan. That's, yes? And would you say, not surprised? And not surprised. So, yes. This, even though he has these, these emotions are expressed, yeah. it's not like, oh, I thought it would be better. None of this took him by surprise. That, that's right, too. It's, you know... Um, there's, there's, there's a lot of different ways to try to tie all this together and to get into the mind of God and understand the complexities of his total plan for creation, for his glory, for redemption, and how all those things blend into then what we see happening after creation from the garden and the fall. Um, how, did, how did the serpent get into the garden? Why was he there? Why did God let him be there? Where did, um, where did all this come from? Yeah. Uh, from the, the other side, I think a lot of 
lot of times it's easy for maybe Calvinists to say God is completely without any emotion. He's just planned everything out from the beginning, and that's just the way it is. And he wouldn't be much different from you know the powerful clockmaker that just set the world in motion and let it be. If that's the way we look at them. So passages like this are great because we, we still it, it doesn't disprove that God is utterly in control of his past plan from the beginning, but it does show that God remains involved and remains interested um, in, in his creation uh, and, and is affecting that, that's right. And I think, you know, we see this repeatedly throughout history um, in Scripture, that God is, is taking control to roll back sin. This is, as Chuck said, kind of a reboot. I mean, we see this elsewhere, too, don't we? God's consideration of reboot, uh, even in the text today, we, we sort of hinted at what almost happened to Israel, Right? God wanted to wipe Israel out and start all over with Moses. Um, very much a parallel to what's going on here. Um, and, you know, the wiping out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the evil that was there. So God does try to rein in sin within the world as part of his common grace uh, and his dealings with mankind. That's right. For the good of all the creation. Okay, so if we, if we look on... Noah is kind of this counterpoint within this context. And um, again, we see just some very, very unusual things um, in this text. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That expression of finding favor is usually something that we find uh, and it probably come to mind. You know, Lord, if I've found favor in your eyes, do this for me. Right? That's usually where we hear that expression. When somebody comes to a superior, you know, to the king or to God himself and asks for something, he, he frames it, you, well, we often hear it framed in, in this way. It's very rare that it's stated that somebody found favor in God's eyes. Um, so this is really um, unusual. And uh, Moses is one of the other few people that this is actually said of in scripture. Um, he is the first person in scripture to be called righteous. Now others, others are, obviously, but um, the definition kind of of what we think of, of righteous is we find in Ezekiel where it's um, kind of what we would talk about normally. You know, it's not just abstaining from sin, but it's also doing good. And so we see this um, is... And, and we'll talk about a little bit about this, about Noah and what he's doing during this time as well. Blameless is, again, rarely applied to individuals. It's usually discussed about with sacrifices, sacrifices that are without blemish. But it's applied to people like Abraham and Job. And it's kind of the underlying um, condition or position that one needs to be in to have close fellowship with God. That's how scripture talks about it. And this expression, walked with God, remember where that came from? Yeah, Enoch, just a few chapters earlier. Enoch walked with God and was no more. And you remember too, how long did he live? Yeah, I don't remember either. But it was a lot shorter than everybody else. Um, there's this sense of which his holiness um, resulted in him going to be with, with God himself. 
So these, again, are things that are very direct characterization. We're being told something about Noah. And normally, Hebrew narrative shows us things about people. So again, we have a very unusual situation, direct characterization, and lots of it, very specific things. Uh, we even see then in chapter 7, and that's kind of why I read into chapter 7, that all the way up until entering the ark, it says, God says, you are righteous in this generation. So God himself is making a declaration about the character and the, the holiness, if you will, of Noah. Okay, so if we think about this as the backdrop, and we kind of know the whole story, what are the different um, sort of... Uh, the, the different elements of story that we've talked about in the past. The setting, we kind of get that, right? What would that setting, the setting of this story be? Okay, that was a hard one. Increasing evil, right, in the world. Sort of this sin increasing evil. And what, what would the plot line be? Again, what's the action driving this forward? What's the plot? Punishment, judgment is coming. Right. Very good. So there's a universal judgment, isn't it? Because it's not just on man. It's wiping out all of creation. And so, so we have this sort of, what's the subplot in this? If universal judgment's the plot, what's the subplot? Salvation of Noah. Salvation of Noah. So there's this thread kind of running through this massive destruction of this righteous person that God has, is going to save. And not just Noah, but this representation of creation as well. Okay, characters. We got God, we got Noah, we got his sons. And, and who's the main character in this story? God is, isn't it? We often talk about this as, as a flood you know, narrative. It's Noah and the ark and, and things. But when you look at who's doing the acting... And where is the description? It's God's activity that we're, we're focused on here. So what's the conflict? Yeah, the conflict is between evil and righteousness. Um, and uh, the turning point, what would you think the turning point might be in this? This is just sort of exercise stuff. It's, it's the flood itself, right? The beginning of the judgment. And if you had to say, what's the climax? <laughs> what's the climax of the story? We didn't read it, so you'll have to... The bird coming back with the branch. The bird coming back with the branch? Okay. Sacrifice. Sacrifice at the end? The okay, the rainbow and the promise? Yeah, okay. All right, well, I'm going to say that it's um, that God remembered Noah. Now I'll show you why that is. So um, the resolution is that God saved Noah, that he covenanted not to destroy the earth again. There was a universal judgment. This is a universal covenant that he makes at the end. There's a couple different ways of looking at the structure. And like I said, this is a long passage, but there is just 
all kinds of intentionality running throughout every aspect of this narrative in which in how it's written, how it's structured and put together. Um, this is just a scenic division. Um, and again, you kind of see that it's kind of a chiastic structure, sort of focusing on the middle, middle with the rising and the falling of the waters. But this is the one that I'm interested in. And this is kind of, um, again, very detailed, but you can't ignore it. When you look through and you read through the text and you see what is going on. So we have these primary genealogies that frame the entire narrative. You have a prologue on man's wickedness paired with the epilogue of man's wickedness. Uh, the narrative doesn't really get us away from wickedness. We have secondary genealogies. We have divine speeches resolved to destroy. And this is offset. There's a, a bit of a switch there between the divine speech and the covenant, my covenant with you. So those are alternated. Um, the divine speech to preserve offset with the divine speech to destroy. Uh, the second divine speech to enter and to leave the ark. Then you have the beginning and the drying of the flood, the rising of the flood and the receding of the flood. And in the middle, right at the start of chapter 8, it says, God remember Noah. That's just beautiful. Um, but its structure focuses the attention of the reader on that very the, the epicenter of the story. And again, it puts the emphasis on God as the actor in this. Yes? I'm just struck with the, uh, depending on the translation, the chapter it starts with, but God, and how many times in Scripture have we heard, but God? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's right. Um, God, God it's, it's sort of like this, the, the world goes on, but, but God steps in. Um, and the, the whole idea of God remembering, um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this, um, but what does it mean for God to remember as if he's forgotten? Again, the, again these, we, we put these human um, terms on God, and it's, it's difficult for us to kind of focus in on what does that mean for God to be sorry? What does it mean for him to remember? What's that? Ah, yes. So when, when it says that God remembers, it's always followed by um, him acting. God remembered his covenant. God remembered Rachel. God remembered Hannah. God remembered Abraham after Sodom. All of those times immediately then is followed by God acting on behalf of his people in some way. And that's what he does here. So he brings this total destruction. And remember, Noah's the subplot here this sub-thread that's going through. And one can almost think that the world is lost. It's truly lost. And, and no, it's just this blip floating out there. Um, and I'm sure he was a little bit concerned, too, with the passage of time. Okay. Other movements within the narrative. Um, do you see any other contrasts or movements that take place from beginning of, to the end of the narrative? Well, we talked about one already, sort of. Okay, the moral content, right? At the beginning, we have a contrast at the beginning between Noah and the rest of the world. Uh, at the same time, we have Noah as righteous at the beginning 
and we have the reminder that he's a sinner at the end. So a a little bit of a counterpoint in terms of flow in which we'd think, oh, God's, God's moving to eradicate wickedness in the world. And yes, that's true. He's, he's trying to stem the tide of that. But at the same time, um, that continues on. And we'll, we'll look at that particularly. Anything else that you can think of in terms of the overall? Yeah, I think about the animals. Like there's a lot. Of, it's, 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 I think it keeps us in the context of, of the original creation and like resetting all of it. It's like you can sort of do it without telling us so much about all the animals creeping on the earth. And, you know, he talks about them and the earth having become corrupt, and then it talks about them coming in and talks about them going out. And, um, I think it's, I think the effect of that is the, partly maybe just the reminder that human wickedness has corrupted everything, but also just sort of the reminder that it's like God is, he hasn't forgotten what he did before and sort of redoing it, but the, the the little room that he brought through and starting over again and the animals. I don't know. Maybe that's like why kids like it, but it's not. Yeah. They're, they're part of the story too, and I think that reminds us that we'll create it and you did before. We start it again in the new way. So, do you all hear that? So, she's talking about the, the, the continuity of animals in this. You know, there's a lot of talk about the, the, the continuity of animals. Relative to the creation the first time, you know, and yes, wickedness was there, but all of creation was corrupted, including the animals. All of creation sort of bore the consequences of that corruption and violence. And then at the same way, at the end, all of creation comes through and kind of this recreation. And so, yeah, a couple other points and then uh, it's just the order of what I have up here. So there's some other things. God's major acts universal judgment paired with a universal covenant at the end. So a judgment to destroy, a covenant that says I'm not going to destroy the whole world again. There's an individual covenant at the beginning with Noah. I'm going to save you and your family. And then again, this kind of universal covenant at the end. And and then getting to your point, this biblical imagery, we have an uncreation happening here. What imagery helps us to think about this in uncreation terms? Think of Genesis 1. The waters covering all the earth. Genesis 1 1, right? Okay, there are two. Anyway, the waters covering all of the earth, and that's what God does again. He covers the water, covers the earth with water, and destroys it. And then at the end, we have again. Terminology pulled from the creation account, be fruitful and multiply. So you're exactly right that this is a recreation story. Yes? Or with also a, afterward, uh, where he reminds them that Anna's made God's image, without wife in Right. Yeah, so we won't touch too much on that whole sort of meat episode and the, the killing, but yes, exactly. So the image of God is invoked again at the, the end of the story, um, reminding that man is, is in God's image. So there's this, again, these terms and things that should draw an imagery that draws our mind to the creation account in the first place and look, brings our minds to it here again. So again, all of these wonderful things that, you know, as you read... You want to ask questions, pay attention to why is it say it this way or these kind of things.
Okay, quickly then. I, yeah, I want to talk about the Lord um, and then about Noah. And so we're going to talk about, just briefly, we've talked about some of this already. The Lord's response to evil um, is, is judgment. Um, we also have uh, the Lord's response to Noah. And what do we know about that? What's his responses to Noah and his righteousness? Well, we have, first of all, the covenant. God covenants with him in chapter 6, 18. And then um, he remembers Noah. And then there's always the good one, right? Um, you know, uh, that you, you always ask your kids, you know, who closed the door of the ark, right? You know, if you've... Is it Richard Scarry or whomever? Not Richard Scarry. Uh, yeah, you know his his book on that. So anyway, kids' book, but it's it's good. So um, God remembers Noah, and and again, um, as he, Kevin pointed out, this idea of remembrance is is something that's God acts. That's another way of looking at that. The other thing is God's response to Noah's sacrifice, and that was brought up. Somebody brought up sacrifice uh, already. Yeah. Um, so at the end then, when, when Noah gets out of the ark, the first thing he does is he takes a bunch of clean animals and he sacrifices and makes a burnt offering. This is the only time in scripture where it says that God smelled a sacrifice. And it's this pleasing aroma to him. And it can be seen not just as a, sort of a thanksgiving offering, but also as a propitiatory offering to God. And in some senses, then, it's a precursor to what God says next and what he does, which is covenant with man and all of creation. And so he appeases, it's, it kind of appeases his anger. We have this, um, again, parallel. We talked about the grieved heart at the beginning. Now we have God says in his heart. So God's heart response um, is paired up, again, from beginning to end. And he gives this promise, the foundation of which um, is that, you know, in response to this offering, the seasons will not, not cease. They will always be in existence. So it's the flood disrupted all of that. So he's not going to do that. The sacrifice precipitates this change in attitude that God takes. The flood was, in, a, in essence, a further act of curse upon the earth and upon mankind over and above Chapter 3:17, where the ground was cursed. So, when it says in um, in chapter 8 that you know um, I will never again curse the ground, it's not saying that he's undoing the curse that he's put on the ground. It's a different word for curse and things like that. But that he's not going to further curse it and make it more difficult for man. And the covenant then not to destroy the earth again. This is God's response to bringing man through, and then Noah's sacrifice to God. So again, God responds and he, makes, he takes action. Now, the other thing we have is this blessing. Then Noah um, is blessed by God. There's this flood language we talked about. The water, the wind. That's another, the wind blowing over the water in chapter 8 when he causes the water to recede. Again, that evokes creation and um, when the, the wind or the spirit of God was blowing across the water and this recreation language. So, what's changed and what's not? So, what changed? 
the earth changed, okay? How? Yeah. Yeah, so creation's starting all over, isn't it? Yes. Right. Yeah, so sin is still there, isn't it? But the degree or the magnitude, let's put it that way. Um, yeah, because what does, what does God actually say after the flood? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So very similar to what he said at the beginning, isn't it? It's a little bit softened, not quite as egregious, not quite a piling up only continually always kind of wicked evil. But he is saying, hey, um, I will never create and curse the ground because the intention of man's heart is always evil from the youth. Okay, so logic teacher, would you accept that from your students? So the logic is, well, you guys are sinful, so I'm never going to wipe you out again. What did, but he, that's what he just did. The first time he said, I'm going to wipe you out because you're evil all the time. Is that maybe a sign of God's grace? I think that might be. More than it was at the beginning. Well, I was going to say he was learning. I don't think he was learning at all. <laughs> It, it does, but it does represent an, uh, God giving it, expressing His understanding of the human condition, doesn't it? And what man needs at this point, unless He's going to completely wipe out the earth, sin is going to prevail. Yes. I think perhaps the reason that that word "because" or "for" is there is to show us that God's making this promise based on His own character and choice. Um, he says, you know. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, so I'm not going to rely on that to make a decision about whether or not to destroy the earth. But he says, I will never again curse the ground. Right. And that's why that he tells you that for. Um, he's explaining, like, there is still this evil in your hearts, but um, don't think that because of that, you know, I'm just forced to destroy you, because I will choose not to destroy you. Right. Very good. You hear that? So this is God's choice uh, not to destroy them because of who he is. Yeah. I think also shows that God always knew that wasn't going to benefit the problem. Yeah. And you know, just like later on, the law won't bring the problem right. either. So that's why he's foreshadowing. So he's not learning from the flood. Right. Well, and it, it, that's right. He's not learning from it. Man is learning from it. God's response to sin. Um, and I think we see that constantly throughout Scripture that um, e- even in Judges, and I'll go back there, that's why I often do, um, but many people will say this, the, the pattern in Judges is, you know, 
Israel goes after other people. They sin. God sends another country to kind of punish them. And then they cry out to God. And they say when they cry out to God, that's, they're repenting. And doesn't say that. And you don't see that. But it changes God's heart towards them. Because it's God's mercy that he shows them then that draws their hearts back to him. The judgment gets them there. It's a step in the process, but often it's not God's punishment, but his subsequent mercy that draws their hearts back to God. So we see, in this case, God still hates sin, and he'll act on it. We're shown that, right? He calls us as his people to live righteously. But God is also merciful, and he will act on it. And that is, he will save and he'll help. And, and we, we get this parallelism with Israel. We have Noah and Moses, both as kind of these mediators between God and the people. We have this new world that's created and gone into sin. We have Israel, this new nation, and it goes into skin, sin, and they're both on the precipice of destruction. So these similar contexts um, and similar responses from God. In, in that case, Mo, you know, Moses says this, you know, God says, I'm not going to be with you because you're a stiff-necked people. And then Moses says, hey, we need you to be with us because we're a stiff-necked people. It's a recognition of who we are and the only thing we can get to move forward is God's mercy. This is what Walter Moberly says. He says, Each time the question is raised, how before God can a sinful world in general, or a sinful people, even God's chosen people in particular, exist without being destroyed? Each time the answer is given that it is the sin, that if the sin is answered solely by the judgment it deserves, there is no hope. But in addition to the judgment, there is also mercy, a mercy which depends on the character of God and is given for an unchangingly sinful people. Okay. We have way more to talk about. Um, we haven't even got to Noah yet. And that's the... Not necessarily the good bits, but it's the, the bits we wanted to get to. So um, I'm not going to press this and, and rush through. So we're going to finish this next time, which means what? What? Read it. Yes, you have a chance to read the text and to think about, okay, let's look at um, Noah here. And then think about, okay, what is this text teaching us about how to live in a sinful world, in a wicked world, if we're his chosen people. Okay, so next time is in two weeks. We don't have Sunday school next week because of the holiday. So in two weeks' time, um, let's think about those kind of things. And um, given the fact that um, I don't know how long that discussion will go or not go, the next text we'll be looking at is 2 Kings 5. So um, read that one. That one's a little bit more interesting and um, raises some interesting questions, I hope. So you might want to start reading that one just to noodle on that for a while and 
um, when we come together to talk about that. So any questions that I can answer up to talking about Noah? Yes? My other thought was that with this part about sinfulness staying with man and that God had mercy, it's proximity to the sacrifice. I just wonder whether maybe it's pointing towards that reality being possible because of a sacrifice, eventually Christ's sacrifice for us. Because that statement is, you know, in the same paragraph as the Lord, you know, sensing that the pleasing aroma and then saying this. Yeah, definitely. The, the idea that, and there's a lot of debate about what was that sacrifice, you know. A lot of people just look at it and think, you know, he's coming out, he's sacrificing because he's thankful, right? Made it through, dry ground, all that sort of stuff. Um, others say, no, it's purely, it's a burnt offering, it's purely um, propitiatory in nature. Um, and there is this combination of the two, but I think definitely this idea of it having a sense of appeasing God relative to sin um, it, it illustrates, too, for us, I think, it's consistent with who Noah is, isn't it? This doesn't say he never sacrificed before this. Um, but we see that, you know, as a part of who he is, someone who is righteous, who walks with God, um, who is found favor in God's eye, this is consistent with a demonstration of his relationship with God. Um, understanding who he is, I think, and, and the state of the world. Yeah. And I was thinking that Noah was so righteous, he certainly was aware of the sin that had committed on the ark between his family members. Well, that, that's a very good point. Um, and, and we don't get some of these. Yeah. The, so the. the doesn't mention it, but yeah. Yeah, um, she says, as a human being thinking, uh, this could relate to all the sins that took place on the ark. One can only imagine the frustrations that might have evoked sin um, in that context. Um, And we'll talk some about that. I think that's the other part to consider. Because as you look at Noah, um, remember, uh, we don't actually get a lot of stuff about him. So that's what you're going to have to think about. But so the idea that this sacrifice was for the sins that took place on the ark. So yeah, definitely. Again, sort of representative of his understanding of what it takes to be in relationship with God and that understanding. All right, let's let's close in in prayer then. Our heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a just God, and we also thank you that you don't always serve us with the justice that we deserve because you are also a God of mercy and a God of grace. We thank you that um, you stand in our place. We thank you that you have sent your Son to be our sacrifice, to bear that on our behalf. Lord, as we seek to live out our lives in this world, we pray for your strength and your mercy. For we know that we are hypocrites. We know that we fail, and we know that we cannot achieve things on our own. So be with us and strengthen us. Give us mercy for others, just as you have shown us mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.